You are listening to the Reality Church Ventura podcast, a collection of sermons from our weekly Sunday gatherings. To learn more about reality, visit us online at realityventura.com. Our text this morning is from Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is God's word, church. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word and for your words of this sermon, Lord, that are so instructive to us, so helpful. Lord, and as we approach the subject of prayer, Lord, I just wanna ask that there would be no barrier this morning, that there would be no hindrance for us uh, as those who follow you to engage with you, to communicate with you, Lord. And so we ask God that your word would bring clarity that it would bring purpose, that it would bring value to our lives, that it would bring vibrancy to our hearts, Lord. Thank you that we have this time to grow in you, to learn about you, to hear from you, Lord. We ask that you would speak in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I once read a story about an atheist who was hiking in the wilderness. And as he was along the path, he was marveling at the beauty of nature. And it was at that point that a seven-foot-tall grizzly bear jumped out on the path not 10 yards from where he was standing. Panicking, the uh, atheist turned and began to run away from the bear, but he soon ran out of breath and fell over. And as he lay there on the ground with this giant bear towering over him, he rather unexpectedly shouted, Lord, help me. Suddenly, the trees stood still, The river became still and the skies opened up and a loud voice spoke saying, I am God, maker of heaven and earth. And even though you don't believe in me, I am here for every being on this earth. I will grant you one wish. Startled, the atheist responded, well, I don't really wanna become a religious person. So I wish that you would make the Christian or the bear a Christian. And the loud voice replied from the heavens, so be it. And at once the sky closed up and the trees began to rustle once again and the bear clapped his paws together and said, thank you, Lord, for this meal I'm about to receive. (laughs) I like this story because it touches perfectly upon the very complicated relationship that humanity has with prayer. Nearly every religion, every religious tradition on this earth has some sort of emphasis on prayer. 
Even people who are deliberately non-spiritual pray. There was a 2004 study that revealed that even 30% of atheists admitted to praying sometimes. And 17% of all non-believers say that they pray regularly. There is simply no escaping the ubiquity of prayer. You find it everywhere you go. Why? Well, I think it's because there is something that is baked into our humanity that recognizes our need to communicate with the divine, to have an audience with something or someone who is outside of our own reality, to access some power that is vastly greater and stronger than our own. Humanity longs to talk to God, and so we pray. But while most people agree upon the importance of prayer in some form, Very few people agree about the nature of prayer itself. How exactly do we access the divine? Is it through ritual? Is it through chanting? Is it through a juice cleanse? What are the instruments of prayer? Do we use relics? Do we use artifacts? Do we use crystals, sound baths? Ice baths seem to be like the trend right now. Beyond the question of how we access the divine, the deeper question is who exactly are we accessing when we pray? What kind of being are we talking to? Is it a a deity? Are we talking to our dead ancestors? Are we speaking to some life force? Like is prayer, like Luke using the force at the end of Return of the Jedi to talk to Obi-Wan? Like what exactly are we accessing? Who are we accessing? My favorite one that I've heard a lot lately is the universe. People on Instagram seem to like that one. I just spoke to the universe. Like they're dead serious. Like I spoke to the universe. And I'm like, what does that even mean? We have all these questions about how to access the divine. Now, I'm sure that most of us as Christians don't believe in crystals or astral projection. But even as followers of Jesus, we often struggle to make sense of prayer. We're all trying to navigate and negotiate our way with communicating with God. And this leads to real questions around prayer. Is there a right way to pray? Is there a wrong way to pray? Does God really hear my prayers? How does God hear my prayers? Now, it's important to note that these questions around prayer and its practice are not new. In fact, they are as old as humanity itself. But at the moment of the gospel story, The discussion around prayer had a very unique cultural edge to it. If you know ancient history, you know that Israel was invaded by the Roman Empire. And with that incursion came an influx of new ideas, new thoughts, new practices around how to access the divine. And you can almost picture just walking through ancient Israel, the shrines to the gods of Apollo and Zeus and Archimedes and Diana and Jupiter juxtaposed with the synagogues of the Jewish tradition. You can almost hear the voices of the rabbis and the Pharisees clashing with the Stoics and the Epicurean philosophers in the marketplace, all discussing the nature of the divine and how to engage with it. This is the spiritual climate to which Jesus is delivering the Sermon on the Mount. Now, it's important to note that at this time in Jesus' ministry, he's a pretty well-known rabbi. Okay, he's not like an indie artist on Spotify. He's got more like the Taylor Swift vibe going on and that people are watching him. They're paying attention to what he's doing, where he's going, who he is associating himself, and most of all, what he is saying. And so it's here at this moment on the mountaintop with all eyes on him that Jesus inserts himself into the conversation around prayer. 
And there are three things that I want to point out uh, from Jesus' teaching on prayer that I think are relevant for us in the way that we engage with God, the way that we access and communicate with the divine. And the first one is this, that prayer is not a performance to please others or impress others. Jesus first turns his attention to the Pharisees. He says, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, the Pharisees, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. He calls the Pharisees hypocrites, as he often does. But I think that it's worth considering for a moment how the Pharisees became hypocrites in the first place, right? The Pharisees get a really bad rap. Uh, We give them a lot of flack. The gospels don't treat them very well, and rightfully so. But I doubt that they all just started off hypocritical. Like they weren't just born into hypocrisy. They didn't just wake up one morning and said, you know what? I'm going to throw my values out the window and I am now a hypocrite. I don't think that's what happened to the Pharisees. I think that they entered into their ministry with, an, with good intentions, in earnest, with a good heart. They wanted to see God glorified and honored. Here's what I think happened to the Pharisees. I think that over time, the Pharisees became disconnected from their own hearts. Slowly and methodically, as they rose through the ranks of ministry, as their position and their status and their power increased, their outer self became detached from their inner self. The persona that they felt that they needed to project outwardly took priority over the person that they were on the inside. The life that they lived in the synagogue began to look less and less like the life that they lived in solitude. Because of this, what they prayed in the marketplace was vastly different from what they believed in the secret place. Though they looked disciplined on the outside, they were desolate on the inside, eloquent in public, yet empty in private. And this is what Jesus is drawing to to the attention of the crowd. This is what he is criticizing. He's not necessarily criticizing their beautiful words or their eloquence. He's criticizing their bankrupt hearts. And friends, I think we would do well to learn a lesson from the Pharisees here because our hearts are just as prone to the slow drift that leads to a hypocritical prayer life. We are just as susceptible to the kind of spiritual double existence that marked the Pharisees, just like, like they did. We project all of these spiritual values onto our identity that God has never asked us to put on. And soon we discover that the person who we are on the inside is actually nothing like the person that we want to be seen as. In his book about prayer, Tim Keller puts pointed words to this identity crisis. He says, if we give priority to the outer life, our inner life will be dark and scary. We will not know what to do with solitude. We will be deeply uncomfortable with self-examination and we will have an increasingly short attention span for any kind of reflection. Even more seriously, our lives will act integrity. Outwardly, we will need to project confidence, spiritual and emotional health and wholeness, while inwardly, we may be filled with self-doubts, anxieties, self-pity, and old grudges. Yet we won't know how to go into the inner rooms of the heart, 
See clearly what is there and deal with it. Unless we put a priority on the inner life, we turn ourselves into hypocrites. See, for so many of us, when we are faced with this dilemma between the internal and the external, what we try to do is we actually try to reverse engineer ourselves. Instead of trying to match the outer self to look like the inner self, we actually do the opposite. Through performance, we try to match the inner self to the outer self. We sing louder. We worship harder. We pray better. We show up to prayer meetings. We say all of the Christian ease. We pray pithy, pointed, powerful, prophetic prayers on time, on topic, at the perfect moment, with the right cadence and inflections, the kind of prayers that get the mmms and the amens and the yes lords from the people around us. And our prayer life might look like a mansion on the outside to everyone around us. But if the inner rooms of your heart are empty, God is not pleased. If the inner rooms of your prayer life are empty, God is not pleased with your eloquent prayers. God who sees what is done in secret does not delight in those types of prayers. Why? Because he never asks you to sound good. God never asked for poignance in your prayer life. He never demanded eloquence from you and he doesn't require your performance in prayer. What God does require in prayer is what King David described as a broken and a contrite heart. The kind of prayer whose chief aim is not the preservation of self, but the examination of self. The kind of prayer that says, search me, O God, know my heart, see if there is any offensive way in me, as David prayed in Psalm 139. The kind of prayer that says, have mercy on me, a sinner, as the parable that Jesus told of the, the, the tax collector and the Pharisee. That kind of prayer, God does not despise. In fact, our passage today says that God rewards these kind of prayers. Pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. But wait, I thought this wasn't about performance, but Jesus is talking about rewards. He's talking about rewards. Aren't rewards based on performance? Well, what Jesus is really saying here is that when it comes to prayer, you will reap the reward of your motivation. So if your motivation in prayer is to be recognized, you'll get your reward. The Pharisees, they wanted to be recognized. They got the reward. If the motivation of your prayer life is to impress other people, you will get your reward. It's pretty easy to impress other people with your words. If the motivation of your prayer life is the praise of man, you will likely get your reward. But... If the motivation of your prayer life is to know and experience God, to have a relationship with God, you will get your reward. Jesus is asking, which reward do you want? The reward of a few good feelings or a good impression, the appearance of spirituality, or the reward of a relationship with the God of the universe? Choose your reward. And I believe that Jesus asked the same question of us. What he's saying in this text is that the true measure of spiritual integrity is the inner prayer life, our motivations. And if that's true, if that indeed is the measure, then it forces us to ask ourselves the question, how do I measure up? 
What are my motivations in prayer? What does my prayer life say about me? If you could give uh, people at church x-ray vision to see into the inner rooms of my spiritual life, what would they see? And more importantly, is what they would see, would it match the way that I am at church, the way that I am at community group, the way that I am at Bible study, at first Sunday prayer? See, for so many of us, and I put myself in this category most certainly, this level of heart disconnection is one of the biggest obstacles to true and honest prayer. You see, it's not that we don't know what to pray. It's not that we don't have the words. It's that we have, been, we have given such a priority to the outer life that we've forgotten the inner life. And in doing so, we've lost the ability to sit in solitude before God alone as our true and honest selves. And I believe through this text that Jesus is calling us back to ourselves, to be real with God in prayer, to stop performing, to stop pretending and just be ourselves before the Lord. That is what a healthy prayer life looks like. It's not a performance to please others. But prayer is also not a payment to appease God. Jesus next turns his attention from the Pharisees, the hypocrites, to the pagans. Pagans is just a a junk drawer term that means anyone who's outside of the Jewish tradition. So this would include the Greeks and the Romans. What does Jesus have to say to them? He says, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him ask him. You see, for the Greeks and the Romans, the pagans, their entire relationship with their gods was purely transactional. So the gods of the Greco-Roman mythology were sort of regarded as these distant and at times even disinterested gods who who did not concern themselves with the plight of mortals. They were busy in their god realm doing god things. Their backs were turned Their eyes were elsewhere. And so if you were a Greek or a Roman and you wanted to get the attention of a God like Zeus or Archimedes or Apollo, what you needed to do was you needed to offer them something worthy of their attention. This usually took the form of some sort of offering, a sacrificial offering, and it was almost always accompanied by a long-winded, ritualistic, repetitive prayer. And so the idea was that if you prayed hard enough and long enough, and, and if you didn't mess up the prayer, then maybe the God that you were praying to would turn. And maybe if they turned, they would take pity on you. And maybe if they took pity on you, then they would intervene in your situation or give you what you needed. This was so pervasive that the Romans actually had a phrase for this kind of relationship with the gods. It's this Latin phrase, do ut des, which means I give so that you will give. Transaction. This was the prevailing philosophy of prayer in the Roman Empire. And perhaps unsurprisingly, this is still the prevailing philosophy of prayer in our culture today. Think about movie prayers. If you've ever seen a prayer in a movie, movie prayers all start the same way. They all start like this. God, I don't ask for much. God, I don't ask for a lot, but if you could just give me blank. Or maybe they sound like this. God, I know that I don't always do as I should. God, I, don't, I know that I don't often pray 
like I should. But if you do this thing, if you do this one thing for me, God, I promise from now on, I'll be good. I'll be a nicer person. I promise that I will pay you back. This is transactional, contractual prayer. This kind of prayer assumes that God is by nature disinterested or at the very least distracted. And through prayer, I must earn his attention. I must earn his gaze in order that he will do something about my needs. This is the way the Romans and the Greeks viewed prayer. It's the way that our culture views prayer. And sadly, this is the way that many Christians still view prayer to this day. And what Jesus is saying both to the pagans and to us is that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is nothing like that. He's not like those other gods. That's not who he is. That's not how he works. The one true God, the living God, is not distant. He's not distracted. He's not disinterested. He is the God who is close to the ones whom he loves. So close, in fact, that he knows what you need before you even ask him for it. You see, when Jesus says that in our, in, in, in our verse, he's not just speaking to God's power. He's also speaking to God's nearness. The word that Jesus uses for know is this word ido, which means to pay attention to. In the same way that a husband or a wife pays attention to the needs of their spouse. It's the same way that a loving parent pays attention to the needs of their kid. Right? If you've ever been in a relationship like that, a really close relationship, you know that you are so close with that person that you often know what they need before they even ask for it. Right? You show, show, up home, uh, show up late for work and you're tired and your wife has that one thing that you need. Or your kids come to you and before they even, a word exits their mouth, you already know exactly the thing that we need. This is the kind of attention that Jesus is describing. And I believe that some of us need to hear this today because for some of us, we actually pray like God's back is turned. We actually pray like God's eyes are elsewhere, like God's distracted. And when we pray, it's like we are trying to get God to look at us. We're trying to earn his gaze. But the truth is that if you have given your life to God, if you have surrendered your life to God, if you've been saved by the blood of Jesus and set free, if you've received the spirit of adoption that calls you a son or daughter of the living God, then you already have his gaze. You already have his attention because in Christ, God has drawn near to you. He has come closer than a brother, closer than your closest friend, closer even than the skin on your bones. So pray like God is close. Don't pray like God is over there. Pray like he's right here because that's where he is. He is the God who is near. And so if prayer is not a performance to please others and it's not a payment to appease God, then what exactly is prayer? Well, Jesus is showing us in the text that prayer is ultimately a pathway to receive God himself. After addressing how we should not pray, Jesus says in verse nine, this then is how you should pray. And it's important to note that Jesus doesn't say, this then is what you should pray. He says, this then is how you should pray. There's a difference. Jesus isn't just giving us magic words to recite. He's giving us a model, a way to posture our heart before God. Now, that doesn't mean that we should never, ever recite the Lord's Prayer corporately. I think it's beautiful 
that we uh, remind ourselves of the true beauty of Jesus' words in this passage. But we must remember that the true beauty of the Lord's prayer is not in the words themselves, but in the heart that it leads us to. It's not an incantation, it's an invitation. An invitation to engage with God in the deepest way possible. Not merely to get what we want or need, but to get God himself. And this morning, I wanna show us how this prayer, this model, this way of communicating ultimately leads us to receive God himself. And it begins with the words, our father. I think the weight of those two words is so lost on us today, right? We have 2,000 years of the New Testament and church history and doctrine to understand these concepts. But in Jesus' day, the idea of communicating with God as Father was very, very, very rare. It was so rare, in fact, that it's actually one of the reasons why the Pharisees wanted Jesus dead, as it says in John chapter 5. But here, Jesus isn't just communicating himself with God as Father. He is instructing his followers to do the same. This is un, there's no category for this in ancient Jewish culture. Jesus is describing a kind of access to God, privileged access, a way to approach God with boldness and confidence like a child. Now, if you have kids, especially young kids like me, you know this kind of access. When your kids need something or when they wanna share something with you, there is no hesitation. No hesitation. You could be mowing the lawn. You could be doing the dishes. You could be on a conference call. If your kid needs something from you, they're gonna come up and they're gonna ask you. If they really want it, they're, gonna, they're just gonna barge in to wherever you are. They're gonna come into your presence and they're gonna ask you for what they need. There is no hindrance for kids. They're not like sending you like a preemptive text message or like a Google calendar invite. Kids just talk. Whatever's on their heart. They just share it in real time. Like they're not drafting up some carefully crafted email with a pointed subject line, like 10 reasons why you should buy me a Power Wheels for Christmas. They just ask for what they want. They just communicate with their parents. Why? Because they have access. You see, I think a lot of us treat prayer like email. We want to talk to God. We want to communicate with God. And we, we craft this prayer and we, uh, we, we draft it up. We craft it. We make it sound good. We have all the right punctuation. We spell check it. And then we hit send. We send it off to wherever God is. And then we wait. And then we wait some more. And then maybe we check our inbox and see if God's responded to us. And if we don't hear anything, maybe we'll like shoot God a follow-up. Like, God, uh, I'm not sure if you... Um, if you got my email, maybe it went to your junk, your junk mail folder, but uh, just following up on that request. Jesus is saying, that's not how prayer works. Prayer is not email. It's not a long distance correspondence with a boss or a coworker. Prayer is a real time, face-to-face conversation with a loving father with whom we have a full and privileged relationship. We have access You have access. You have the access of a child. If your faith is in Jesus, you have the access of a child of the living God. That's powerful. But we also need to remember that prayer is as much about reverence as it is about relationship. See, God is not just our father. He is our father in heaven. 
God is not only near to us, he's also above us. He's higher than us. That doesn't mean that he's distant or unapproachable, right? We have been given full access as children, but it does mean that we as the child coming to the parent must recognize who in the relationship has the power, who in the relationship has the authority, the ability, the strength, and the wisdom. We must recognize that God truly is holy, which is why we pray, hallowed be your name. It's this understanding that I am in the presence of someone who is holy and completely different from me in nature. Have you ever gotten access to a place that you know you shouldn't have been able to get into? Maybe it's at like a sporting event or a concert and you like wander into the VIP section and you don't know how you got there. Well, a few years ago, I got randomly invited to a celebrity's 30th birthday party. I have no idea how it happened. I won't say who it was, but they're on movies and TV. And I said, sure, why not? I'll go. And I remember being there. I remember being at this party, seeing all of these people that I had seen. I recognized them from like TV and movies and music. And I felt so uncomfortable. The thought in my head was like, I am not supposed to be here. I, I have no business being here, but I am. I am here. This is crazy. That feeling is reverence. And Jesus is saying that when we enter into conversation with the living God, reverence matters. We come with that same feeling of like, God, I should not be here. I I have no business being here, but I'm here because of your love. And that is so crazy. Let's talk. That's what reverence is in prayer. But why does it matter? Why is it important that we approach God with reverence? Well, if you have seen a spoiled child, you know exactly why reverence matters. You see, spoiled children have access to the parent and all of the benefits of the parent, but they have no reverence. Remember Veruca Salt from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? What was their signature catchphrase? Anybody? Daddy, I want it now. I want it now. Give it to me now. See, she had access to her father, but she had no reverence. And so her communication with her father was really just an attempt to leverage her access to get what she wanted from her dad. Now, that's a silly example, but it is true of prayer. When we come to God with access, but uh, no reverence, Our prayers primarily become about our desires, about our will, about our plan, our ambition, what we want from God, what we want God to give us, what he's not giving us currently. Prayer becomes about us. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't ever complain to God, right? There's plenty of that in the Bible. Nor does it mean that we can't express our desires to him. There's plenty of that in the Bible too. But it does mean that we must do so with the recognition that he is the true authority figure. A spoiled child approaches their father thinking that they know what's best. This was the prodigal son, came to his father and said, I want my inheritance. I know what's better for my life. Just give me what I want and I'm out of here. But the truth about our heavenly father is that he really knows best. And so we must come to him with reverence because God has vision for things that we ourselves can't see. He has insight into our hearts that even we can't recognize. And so to pray, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name is to come before God with confidence, with boldness, but also 
with humility and trust, recognizing that we have full access that we fully don't deserve. And it's this place of, of relationship and reverence that provides the foundation for true, honest, and effective prayer. Knowing our access to God gives us the confidence to pray with boldness, to pray boldly. But knowing God's holiness gives us the awareness to pray humbly. And it's from here that Jesus instructs us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why does that matter? Well, if you could distill God's purpose down to one singular idea, like what is God doing? What is he up to? What is his goal on the earth? It would be this. God is at work establishing his kingdom upon the earth. Since Genesis chapter three, when sin entered into the world, God has been doing the work of bringing about his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to inaugurate that kingdom. And one day, he will come once again and consummate it. And everything that happens in between, including our salvation, our sanctification, the relationships that we have, is all with this goal in mind, with kingdom intentionality. And so when we pray, it is good and right for us to be reminded of God's kingdom story, a bigger story than ourselves that the purpose of our lives is actually God's purpose on the earth. It is so important, this, this, this kingdom framework is so important because it frames everything else that we ask for, everything that comes next, our petitions, our requests, all of that must be filtered through the lens of God's kingdom purpose. Because without a kingdom filter, our prayer life easily goes from thy kingdom come to my kingdom come. From thy will be done to my will be done. From on earth as it is in heaven to on earth as it is in my feelings. But when we pray through a kingdom lens, our desires become aligned with God's desires. Our goals become aligned with his goals. Our ambitions become aligned with his purpose and our hopes and dreams become aligned with his will. We become God's partners. And in that process of alignment, we begin to see the big picture. We become less nearsighted about our circumstances and our situations. We become less myopic. We begin to see the true meaning and value and purpose of our lives. We see our sorrows and our joys, our triumphs, our tribulations, our successes and our failures all in light of God's coming kingdom. And we start to care less and less about our name and our fame and more and more about God's name and God's fame less obsessed with our silly little do-it-yourself kingdoms and more obsessed with his glorious one. A kingdom that is not yet here, but one day will come in the fullness of glory where every sorrow will be lifted and every tear will be wiped away, where every wrong will be made right. But that doesn't mean that we ignore our needs or our struggles. In the very next verse, uh, Jesus instructs us to pray for our daily needs. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, if you were a worker in the time of Jesus, you were paid day by day. You lived day by day. And Jesus is calling us here to live day by day in prayer, asking God for everything that we need. But wait a minute. Doesn't God already know what we need? Doesn't he know before we even ask him? Why is Jesus telling us to pray for something that God already knows about? Well, When we pray for our needs every single day, 
it cultivates a heart of dependence and reliance upon God. Now, this can be a challenge for us because many of us are really good about praying for our yearly bread. Many of us are good at praying for our monthly bread or even our weekly bread. But when it comes to our daily bread, it can be a struggle. We're like, God, you know what? If you could just handle the big stuff, if you could just handle the move, if you could just handle my kids, if you could just handle whatever, whatever big thing, I'll take care of the little things. You get the yearly bread, I'll get the daily bread. And that's not the way that prayer works. and That's not what Jesus wants from us. Because when we forget to pray for our daily bread, it's easy for us to become self-reliant. But Jesus is calling us through prayer to be God-reliant in everything that we do, to be dependent upon God for every need, the way that little children are dependent upon their parent for almost every single thing. But when it comes to prayer, Jesus says that we must not only address our daily needs, but also our greatest eternal needs. And this is where we get to the subject of forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Jesus is focusing in here on our spiritual need of forgiveness. While God is faithful and kind to deal with our daily needs, he also deals with our ultimate need to be forgiven of our spiritual debt. You see, a debt implies a failure to pay. Every single day that we live and breathe, that failure, what the Bible calls sin, produces a deficit that must be addressed. And through prayer, Jesus wants us to address our moral and spiritual failure as well as the failure of others. But why is forgiveness so essential to prayer? Well, the answer might seem obvious, but forgiveness is central to prayer because forgiveness is central to the kingdom of God. Forgiveness is central to prayer because it's central to God's kingdom. You could even say that forgiveness is the currency of God's kingdom. God deals in forgiveness. And so when we pray through a kingdom lens, addressing both our need for forgiveness and our need to forgive others becomes crucial. Now make no mistake, Jesus is not saying that we somehow earn forgiveness from God by forgiving others. It's not like we forgive somebody and then we give, get like a forgiveness credit. That's not the way that God's, God works. But what Jesus is saying is that when we, uh, when we behold what God has done for us, we actually don't earn forgiveness, we emulate forgiveness. When we truly grasp the power of forgiveness that we have been shown, it gives us both the humility and the strength to forgive those who sin, sin against us. As forgiven people, we become forgiving people. And when we choose to forgive other people, we become ambassadors of the kingdom. We become beacons of light in a dark and hopeless world. We become true image bearers when we choose to forgive. And so Jesus says we must pray for forgiveness often. But prayer is not just about the forgiveness of past sins. It's also about protection from future sins. And so finally, in addition to our need of forgiveness, we must also address our need to be delivered from the struggle of temptation and the presence of evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. See, often we approach temptation in one of two ways. We either condone temptation and sometimes even celebrate temptation. That's what we do in culture right? It's a marketing tactic. Have you ever seen one of those Lindor chocolate commercials? It's all about temptation. 
We celebrate it. The, the other approach is to run from temptation completely, to hide from it. That's the religious approach to temptation. And to pray what Jesus is asking us to pray here is neither one of those approaches. It's neither one of those. To truly pray what Jesus is asking us to pray offers us a way through temptation and evil. We recognize the presence of temptation and evil in our lives. It's, it's everywhere, but it's not always obvious to us. Our hearts need to be drawn to the, to the presence of temptation. We need to ask that, ask that of God in prayer to make it clear to us. Where are the areas that I'm being tempted? Where am I struggling? Where am I strong and, I don't, and am, I, am I guards down? We need to remind ourselves of temptation's destructive nature. We need to call it for what it is and the empty promises that it makes. We need to be honest about our own tendency to give in to temptation and evil. And we need to trust God to deliver us through it, believing in prayer that the promises of God are better than the promises of sin. Access, reverence, surrender, dependence, forgiveness, deliverance. These are what Jesus requires of us in prayer. And when we choose to pray like this, when we choose to engage with God like this in the honest closet of our own hearts, what we end up with, the result is a true and authentic relationship with God himself. Vibrant, full of life, full of joy, full of trust, full of depth. Isn't that the relationship that we all want with God? Isn't that, is that not the kind of connection that all of us are looking for with the divine, a relationship where we can truly be ourselves, to truly be open and honest and vulnerable without fear of shame or punishment, to be truly accepted, to be truly loved. Jesus says that we find it through this way of praying. Because the framework of the Lord's prayer is the antithesis of both performance and payment. It's the anti-performance because it forces us to be honest about ourselves and our condition, right? The Lord's prayer does not make us look very good, okay? Think about it. To truly pray according to the Lord's prayer is to acknowledge that I am unholy, that I am not the king, that my will is secondary, that I can't fulfill my own needs, that I'm desperate for forgiveness, that I'm hopelessly prone to temptation, and that I am utterly capable of self-deliverance. We do not come out of the Lord's Prayer looking very good. But do you know who does? God does. And that's kind of the whole point. That's kind of the whole point of prayer to remember that God is the Holy One, that God is the King upon the throne of heaven and earth and that we are heirs with Christ, that God's will on this earth, his plan is vastly better than any plan we could have ever dreamed up for our own life, to remember that God provides for every need, both spiritual and physical, even the needs that we ourselves don't realize, that God gives us true forgiveness from the weight and the penalty of our sin. And that through his forgiveness, God has empowered us to forgive those who have wronged us and sinned against us. And that God is faithful to deliver us from every kind of temptation and evil that we could ever face in this lifetime. And though you and I have done nothing to earn any of it, God has done everything to freely give it. The only question is, will you receive it? 
See, there's a hard truth here in this passage that cannot be ignored. It's that if you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus, these benefits actually don't apply to you. If you haven't put your faith in Christ today, if you have not trusted in Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, then the truth is that performance is your only option. Payment is your only option. You actually don't have childlike access to the Father. And the Bible is pretty clear that your performance and your payment is not enough to get you an audience with the living God. Your sin has created a debt so great that you could not pay it off in a thousand lifetimes. That's the bad news. But the good news is this, that if you put your faith in Jesus today, if you receive Jesus today, you don't have to perform because Jesus performed for you. You don't have to be perfect because Jesus was perfect on your behalf. You don't have to pay because Jesus gladly made the payment for your sin. He gladly paid the bloody price tag of your sin and your failure so that you could walk freely into eternal life with God. That's the good news of the gospel. That's why we talk about it every single Sunday. We don't get tired of it. We don't grow weary of it because it's the best news possible. That because Jesus paid, because Jesus performed, we can be called children of God. We can have access. We can communicate with God. There's only one time in scripture where Jesus doesn't call God Father. Only one instance where he doesn't use the word Abba to refer to God. It's on the hill of Calvary. As Jesus is hanging from the cross, as the weight of our sin and our rejection rested upon him, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not Abba, but Eloi, my God. On that day, Jesus gave up his access so that you and I could have access once and for all. On that day, Jesus bore the weight and the shame and the stain of your sins so that you could be called holy. On that day, Jesus gave up his kingship and his authority. He took a crown of thorns so that you and I could wear the crown of an heir. On that day, Jesus laid down his needs so that you could call upon God to meet your needs. On that day, Jesus emptied out his bank account to cover the cost of your forgiveness. And on that day, Jesus resisted the temptation to save himself so that you could be saved forever. On that day, as Jesus was hanging there, crucified, he gave up his ability to communicate with the Father so that you and I could communicate freely with the Father forever so that we can access the divine. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we just stand in awe and in wonder of the work that you did so that we could have the access of children, so that we could have the level of intimacy with you that's only reserved for a child, God. It is so beautiful. It is so wonderful. It is so marvelous. It's something that we could not even comprehend. And yet, Lord, you have done it. We have no business, God. We have no business being in your presence today. We have no business being this close to you, this intimate with you. And yet here we are because of the sacrifice you made. We are here with you. 
thank you, Lord, for your nearness. Pray, Lord, that as we respond to you, you would give us the grace to be vulnerable, to be open, to be present with you, to not perform, to not pretend, but to simply sit in your presence as our true and honest self before you. Lord, and I believe that it's in that place where you do the greatest work. It's in that place where you do the best work. It's in that place where you bring about transformation. So I'm praying for my friends here that as we sit in your presence, honestly and vulnerably before you, that you would do the work that needs to be done in our hearts so that we can have a deeper, more intimate fellowship with you.